Well, good morning. Take your Bibles this morning and turn to the book of Esther. The book of Esther. And as you're doing that, uh, you can see that we have a big stack of uh, well-arranged Operation Christmas Child boxes up here, up front. I appreciate everybody uh, being involved in that. Uh, those of you who put the box together, it's a really, really cool uh, way to uh, to be able to just plant seeds of the gospel really throughout the world. And so uh, if you got a box, you put supplies in there that'll help uh, bless kids. But more importantly, these will uh, be in the hands of, of real kids in real places across the globe uh, in the coming weeks, coming months. And so uh, thank you for doing that. Maybe you just realized, oh, no, those are due today because they are due today. Uh, you can go see Miss Imi at the, uh, I believe she'll be out in the concourse at her table after this service. And she can let you know how to get your box turned in this week. Tell you what, let's pray over these right now. Father, thank you so much for an opportunity to be involved in your mission that you're doing in this world in all sorts of ways. And we thank you, Lord, for uh, Operation Christmas Child. Father, I pray each of these boxes represents a child. Uh, that we know we'll be holding these boxes, a soul, more importantly, Father, that, uh, that you uh, created. And Lord, we pray that as a result of them receiving this box, Lord, we pray, pray that physical needs will be uh, met. And we pray, Lord, that they will uh, experience some, some gladness and some joy by some fun things within, Lord. But we pray that the gospel seeds that are planted, Father, most importantly, will take root in their life. And that even as a result of these boxes going to them, this will help uh, connect them with the Savior that they need. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So Esther is where we're going to be uh, this morning. So a few years ago, it's been a while back, I was on the interstate uh, driving. And uh, in my rearview mirror, I noticed uh, coming up on, uh, on our tails were some, uh, some cars that were driving fast, weaving in and out of traffic. Uh, guys that obviously, you know, hey, uh, they had places to go, important people who needed everybody else to move out of the way. And so you could tell they were getting frustrated, flashing lights, and uh, they come up on my bumper. And uh, the dude was flashing his lights and like, you know, move, you know. And I was like, man, I just give me, give me some time, get some space to get over so you can go around me. You ever been there before? All right. And so uh, sure enough, he comes up, uh, finally comes up next to me and, and zooms around me, uh, even waves as he, uh, as he goes by my car. Um, a few fingers short of a regular wave. Um, and so obviously he's uh, pretty, pretty upset. And, uh, and so he, he moves on down the way. And, uh, and so about five or 10 minutes later, as I'm driving up, I see that same guy parked on the side of the road with a highway patrolman behind him with his lights on and that officer leaning in the window. Now, wh- how do you think I felt as I was driving by, right? You think I was like, uh, you think I was like, oh man, the poor guy, poor soul. No, I was like, whoever made that sound over there, I was more like that, all right? I was like, man, that guy got what was coming to him, right? We, we like stories like that, right? We like stories where justice is delivered, and especially when it's poetic justice, it's even sweeter. It's even better. We resonate with those kind of stories. I'd argue that because uh, we, those resonate with us because, uh, especially from Scripture, understanding Scripture, that, that God's made us that way because we're made in His image, right? There's a part of us deep down that understands that evil should be dealt with. Right? But the problem is we live in a world where uh, evil isn't always met with, with justice, where it feels like evil goes unchecked. And I'm not just talking about speed and sports cars right now. You slip past a speed trap. I'm talking about the egregious acts of evil that are happening in our world. All the evil that the, the evil one has inflicted and done in the past and continues to do generation after generation after generation. Here's the wonderful truth about the Christian faith. 
that there is a good God who is just, who is alive, who opposes wickedness, who opposes sin, who opposes evil, and will not let the guilty go unpunished. He's a good God who delights in protecting his children from the evil and who wants to destroy you. You know, if you're in Christ, you have an enemy who wants to destroy you. If you're not in Christ, you have an enemy who wants to destroy you. In this story, this, uh, the book of Esther, it's a story about a God of love. It's a story about a God of justice who is always working, never stops working, and who will one day deal with sin, deal with Satan once and for all. This is a story that helps us see that. You stand with your Bibles open. I'll begin to read in verse 1 of chapter 4. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out in the midst of the city, and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was a great mourning among the Jews, with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her the queen was deeply distressed, she sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept it. Then Esther called for Hathak. That's a fun word to say. Hathak. Sounds like Aflac. One of the king's eunuchs who had been appointed to attend her and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. And Mordecai told all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasury for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction that he might show it to Esther and explain to her the command or command her to go to the king to beg his favor and to plead with uh, him on behalf of her people. And Hathak went and told Esther uh, what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one whom the king holds out golden scepter uh, that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king for 30 days. Verse 12, they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther. Do not think to yourself that the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at the time, at this time, relief and deliverance will rise from the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows, Esther, whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Would you have a seat as I pray? Father, I pray that you'd speak to us through your word this morning. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be focused. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to have teachable hearts. I pray if there's anyone here among us who does not know you, who is not in right relationship with you through the shed blood of your son, Lord, I pray that today the gospel would be made clear, and Lord, that your Holy Spirit, Lord, would draw them unto yourself, and that they would experience salvation today. I pray for all of us who know you, that you would make our hearts teachable and humble and that we'd lean in and learn as a result of your spirit moving. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've been walking through the Old Testament on Sunday mornings and discovering through this series called The Gospel Thread that on every page and every story, you find a gospel thread running through all of Scripture leading to one place, Calvary, Jesus Christ there in the place of sinners. And this morning, we find a lot of gospel threads in the story of Esther. 
Esther tells the story of God's faithfulness to the Jewish community that has stayed back in Persia after the Babylonian captivity has ended. Uh, There was a decree that was written that uh, the people of Israel could go back to the promised land, but for some reason, a lot of people stay. They don't obey the prophet's words to go back, but they stay. They stay in Persia. And so in Persia, they are facing a crisis that we're going to learn about this morning. It's a fascinating book. I mean, if you like a good drama, if you like a real-life drama, Esther is your book. This is like an American soap opera with Persian subtitles, all right? It's got everything. Uh, and I want to dive right down into the middle of this crisis. And really, we just read uh, about what we'll cover here at the very beginning of this. But we will uh, look at this story in three sections, all right, three chunks. This is the way we'll divide up this story. Uh, and the first one is this, all right? We l- we're going to look at the enemy's planned annihilation. As we look at a crisis that the Jewish community is facing as they're living in Susa, the capital city of the ancient Persian Empire, we see that first uh, they are are facing annihilation from an enemy. All right, so verse 1 kind of sets that up. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, what had been done, all right, you have to uh, go back and realize the king of Persia, Xerxes, Osiris is another name that's used for him here. We're going to go with Xerxes this morning. Uh, He's a bad person. He was a foolish king. Uh, he decides uh, to promote a man uh, in his, uh, you know, in his royal uh, uh, court, uh, a man named Haman, and he uh, he decides to promote him to the position of like VP, think second most powerful guy in the empire. And uh, the king commands, as was typical with guys that you uh, put put up at a a high-ranking power like this, where Haman's at, uh, he commanded that everyone was to bow down to Haman wherever he went in the city. All right, everybody was to bow down to Haman. Now, Haman loved this more than anybody because Haman loved Haman, all right? He was a very self-absorbed guy. He was very power-hungry. He was a big-headed guy, all right? He had a big ego, and his ego could not overlook something that happened over and over and over again. And we read about it in chapter 3, verse 2. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down to great Haman and paid homage to Haman, the new VP. For the king had so commanded concerning him. But a man named Mordecai did not bow down and pay homage. Every time Haman walks into the room, he's used to everybody bowing down. Every time he walks down to the road, he's he, down the road, he's used to people bowing down and showing him the respect that he feels like he deserves. But there's one man named Mordecai who will not bow to him, and it drives him crazy. Now we can understand a little bit of the friction here. All right, uh, why there's some uh, there's some serious um, issues going on. See, Haman is. A, a, he's an Agite or an Agagite. All right. If you look at the way his name and his title is listed out, it's Haman the Agagite. We read about the Agagites in First Samuel. All right. They come from the lineage of King Ag- Agag. All right. He's the king of the Amalekites. All right. And they hated the Jews. They, they hated the Jews. Every generation seems to have people who are anti-Semitic, people who hate the Jews. And in that generation, it was the Amalekites, people who who hated the Jews uh, a whole lot. And, and, and so Samuel comes to Saul and he actually says, hey, I need you to deal with the Amalekites. We're going to wipe them out completely. And Saul doesn't obey that command. All right. Uh, hence where we're at here in Esther chapter four. This guy named, uh, this guy named Haman hates Jews just like his great, great, great granddad did. And so this Hebrew man not bowing to him can like show you why he's just a little extra mad about it. So he gets infuriated and he uses his power to inflict some punishment on Mordecai. He wants Mordecai dead. All right. And he doesn't just want Mordecai dead. He wants the entire Jewish community dead. 
Now, we're talking about over 10 million probably living in the 127 provinces of Persia, men, women, and children. He wants them all dead. And so he goes and meets with King Xerxes. And he says, hey, listen, uh, these Jews are living here. You know, he, he kind of sets up really a lie. He kind of makes it sound like they're a nuisance being in the Persian Empire. And really the way he gets Xerxes' attention is he offers him 10,000 talents of silver, which was a lot of money back then. The annual taxation amount, half of the, I'll say this way, half of the annual taxation amount of the entire Persian Empire, talking about from Ethiopia to India, was about 10,000 talents of silver. And so Xerxes, who loves that tax money coming in, he goes, yeah, show me where to sign. We'll go ahead and do that. Haman evidently was loaded. He was able to deliver uh, that amount of money. So Xerxes says, where do I sign? He signs an edict and the edict is made. And so 11 months later, this planned Holocaust is put into place. All the Jews in the empire are going to be slaughtered. He makes copies of the edict. Somehow they make copies and they send this thing out into the city. And where we find ourselves in chapter 4, verse 1, with Mordecai tearing his clothes and putting on sackcloth and ashes, now you know why. Because this edict has been sent out. There's mourning and crying. It's not just him along with all the other Jews. And yet uh, Mordecai probably feels the worst because he probably feels guilty. I'm the one who wouldn't bow. This is all happening because of me. I'm the one who sent crazy Haman into psycho mode to put this plan into place. And with the Medo-Persian law, once a decree was made, it was irreversible. So it's a place of hopelessness. It's a place of helplessness. They feel like they're all going to die or maybe they won't. Maybe not. Maybe there's some hope because, see, Mordecai has some connections. He has some serious connections because his Jewish cousin is Esther, and Esther is queen in Persia. Now, maybe this story is new to you, and you're going, wait a second. You just said Mordecai's a Jew, and he, his, his younger cousin Esther is the queen of Persia, and she's a Jew. Help me make sense of this. And so what we're going to have to do here for a moment, I know I've given you already a little bit of history, but what we're going to have to do is we're going to kind of have to leave morning Mordecai there at the gate. We're going to have to dream sequence back to chapter 1 to make sense of this. And as I do, as I fill you in on a little background here, there's going to be some places, hang with me, that we've got to stop and learn some lessons along the way. So five years before Haman is promoted and plans to kill all these Jews, in chapter 1 we learn that King Xerxes is having fun ruling the world. I'm not just saying that. like just uh, I literally mean he's ruling the world, right? Tears for fears that everybody wants to rule the world. Xerxes is ruling the entire world. Thank you for getting that one person. In chapter 1, he's throwing a party. He loved to throw parties. And you'll see that throughout this story. He throws this big party that is recorded there in chapter 1, and he's trying to woo kings to join him to battle against the Greeks. And so he's trying to you know, show off all of his stuff. It says that over the course of two banquets, two big banquets, over the course of 180 days, it says in verse 4, he showed the riches of his royal glory, glory and splendor and pomp and greatness for all of that time. You know you got some serious stuff in the garage. You know you got some serious stuff to show off when it takes you 180 days to have your little show and tell with your kings you're trying to impress. Well, he gets to the near, near the end of the banquet, and it's almost like a guy who's had some friends over and you, you're uh, hosting a party, and, and you kind of want to show the guys your most prized possession. So maybe you do something like go to the garage and show the car that you've been working on, something that you're really, really proud of. Yeah, Xerxes tries that with his wife. 
He sends word for Queen Vashti to come in because he has waited to this moment to show her off, probably sending word and giving her the idea that he wants her to come in and strut down a runway, more of a sensual, provocative way. And she sends back word and says, no, 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 thank you. And so he gets rid of her. He sends out a decree because his servants were like, man, you got to do something with Vashti or all the men are going to, all the women in the, in the land are going to start ruling over their men. And so he gets rid of her and he sends a decree out to all the homes in the land to say basically to men, hey, make sure you take control. Do not let your wife take control of you. And Vashti's banished and he needs a new wife. And so what he decides to do is he decides to put together a beauty contest. Think ancient Persian version of The Bachelor, but way more risque. Possibly a thousand young ladies enter into this competition. And a Jewish man named Mordecai, who's adopted his younger cousin named Esther and has become a father figure in her life, enters her in or allows her to be entered in to the competition. And also tells her this, this is his advice, don't say anything about being Jewish. You just go in there and you smile and you look pretty and you win this thing. And there's the timeout. This is where we have to learn some lessons. See, we often will quickly get into a story like this and elevate quickly Esther and Mordecai to a place of an example to follow. And we get there, right? You're going to get to a place in the story where you see growth, you see maturity, you see them as great examples to certainly model your life after in different ways. But we often overlook the fact that there are a lot of terrible decisions that they make. They make immoral decisions. Much like the rest of the Jewish community that stays back in Persia, uh, we see them assimilating to the Persian culture in different ways. Nothing they're doing, nothing you see them doing right here and getting into this competition, uh, keeping their, their, their Hebrew heritage quiet and on the down low, none of this lines up with their Jewish faith and who, as covenant children of God, who they're called to be. And it's a reminder to every single child of God, we must continue to learn what it looks like to live out our faith in Persia. Do you feel the pressure to assimilate to the culture that you live in? Do we not all feel the pressure to blend in with the darkness of the culture that we live in, the pressure in the world uh, to, 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 to look like the world, to think like the world, to talk like the world, to not take things in God's word as serious as we maybe should because of the world's position on those things. And the pressure of the world has gotten to Mordecai and Esther. And I don't know for sure, but I thought about this week. I wonder if those blind spots that they were experiencing were a result of neglecting uh, the, the, the very same things that if we neglect those same things, we become vulnerable to cave to the pressure of the culture that we live in ourselves. And what do I mean specifically? I mean this, a commitment to the word of God and to living life in a community of believers. The world puts a lot of pressure on us to assimilate to the culture. You know, uh, the Challenger Deep is a spot that is the deepest known place in all of the ocean. All right, It's located in the southern end of the Mariana Trench, the western Pacific. It's almost 36,000 feet down uh, below the sea. All right, Now, in this room, the atmospheric pressure is... I think probably maybe just under uh, 15 pounds per square inch, right? In the Challenger Deep, it's just under 15,000 pounds of pressure per square inch, right? That, that has the power to fold a car like you fold a piece of aluminum foil, all right? It's powerful. 
And the only way to handle that pressure, the only way to survive, the only way to, to, to not be crushed in that environment is to actually get into like a specially made submarine vessel that can withstand those pressures and can, can protect you from getting crushed. Being inside that chamber is the place where you're fortified, right? In the same way, spiritually speaking, I want you to tune in and think about this. Church, what you're doing this morning, living life together in a community of believers, having a heart buried in the word of God, that is our chamber, Spiritually, the, the, the pressure to cave is real. The pressure to compromise is real. The pressure to laugh at things that nailed our, our Savior to a cross, to entertain ourselves with those things is real. The pressure to fudge numbers at work may be real. The pressure to cheat on a test may be real. The pressure to adopt worldly philosophies may be real. The pressure to adopt views of sexuality today that, that, that are, are, are more popular than the ones that are unpopular found in God's word is real. It's intense. And if you aren't fortified believer, you will fold. Christianity, you, it takes a commitment to God's word consistently. We're sanctified by God's word. His word is truth, John 17, 17 says. It takes his word. It takes a commitment to assembling ourselves with the believers and not just assembling ourselves, living life within a community of believers. Christianity is not a solo sport. If your Christian faith can be reduced down to you having a latte and a line of scripture and uh, some Joy FM uh, once or twice a week to get you through your life as a Christian, you will fold. And I know I'm preaching to the choir a little bit this morning, but that's not enough. Your need for the word of God in your life daily, like the food you eat on a daily basis, the need that you have for community of saints in your life to help protect you and mature you, lest this culture influence you and you cave, cannot be understated. It's definitely gotten to Mordecai and Esther. You say, well, how, how do you know that? Well, let me ask you, if you are a father figure of a girl that you've adopted, would you in any way, allow your daughter to enter into a contest like this, to go into the harem of a king like this, to compete to become that pagan king's wife? The answer better be no, right? Over my dead body, is that gonna happen? It may happen, but I'm gonna be dead before it does happen. He doesn't protest. He tells her to keep her faith private. And Esther, there's definitely, I think, definitely a case uh, that I don't want to... Uh, overlook or, or diminish uh, the importance of a case of her, uh, you know, definitely a sad case of, of abuse uh, being taken advantage of, but she doesn't resist. Vashti resists. Vashti shows it's possible to resist, but there's no sign of resistance. There's no sign of protest on her part. Well, anyway, she wins this kind of sketchy contest. She has great beauty. The king sees that. He wins. She wins his, his heart, wins him over. And then something else happens that's an important part of this story. After she takes the throne, Mordecai, her cousin, older cousin, he's working around the king's palace, and he overhears some men plotting to assassinate the king. So he tells Esther, who tells the king it was an actual assassination plot that gets foiled by Mordecai. It's written down in the king's records, and he forgets about it, and life moves on. And five years later, here's Haman, who's a VP, and he has set things in motion for Jews to die. Mordecai's devastated. And there he is. We're back at the king's gate. Sackcloth and ashes. He's devastated. And actually, from where he's come from, this is actually, there's some good in this. 
He's living out his faith out loud. He's living out his faith in public. There seems to be some progress going on. Hey, he's a work in progress, but he's progressing. He's mourning there at the king's gate, and it gets the attention of his younger cousin, Esther, who's the queen, and she sends down some servants to see what's going on, which leads us to the second part of the story, the queen's courageous intercession. The queen's courageous intercession. Now, that's a pretty epic line, the queen's courageous intercession, but it takes her some time to get there. It says in verse 4, when Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her the queen was deeply distressed, and it says she sent him a new outfit. That's a little random. What's up with that, right? She hears he's down there in sackcloth and ashes. She says, hey, here's a suit from Dillard's. Put this on quick. Clean up. And here's why. Because sadness, people who are sad, people are killing the vibe, aren't supposed to come up into the king's court or near the king's presence. He likes jesters. He doesn't want bad news. She's like, he's a crazy man. We'll see that in a second. She's like, you're going to die. Put this on. And also inquires, what are you doing anyway? With the sackcloth and ashes going on. She, you know what's happened? She's totally unaware of what's happened. She's totally clued. She's been isolated for so long from the daily life of her community. that she's, And she's lived life in that palace for so long. She doesn't have a clue about the edict that's been sent out. And her and Mordecai go back and forth. Back and forth, back and forth talking about this. Won't spend a lot of time on this. But Esther's servant goes back and tells her. Uh, what Haman has done and explains that, uh, you know, the servant tells Esther, hey, Mordecai wants you to go into the king and beg him to let all the Jewish people not die. And Esther sends word back and says, I can't do that. And we just read it. Didn't we know when, hey, no one, not even me is allowed to go into the king's court uninvited. He kills people for that. This guy was crazy. You can read in Josephus, the uh, ancient uh, Jewish historian in antiquities, his his historical work, he said around Xerxes' throne, there were actually men with axes always waiting for anyone to come in uninterrupted. And if he didn't extend a scepter, off with your head. That's the guy we're talking about. And even a queen could not go in uninvited. This guy's a nut job. At one time, he built a bridge and a flood washed away the bridge. And so he ordered his armies to go down to, to flog the river for disobeying him because he felt like he was a god. All right, so this guy's a little off. No wonder she's a little hesitant to run in there. All right, we all would love to think that we would just run in, you know, to a Christian song and say, here we go. But we can all understand why she may be a little reluctant. She explains on top of this, I haven't been in his bed for 30 days, which means others have, which means I'm probably not his favorite at the moment. And Mordecai hears about her reluctance, and I love this. He sends back the persuasive message that is a key part of this entire book in verse 13 and 14. He said, Esther, do you think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews? For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise from the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. In other words, he's saying this. Here's the deal, Esther. God's going to save his people with or without you. I believe that is the heart of what Mordecai is saying right here. Whatever you decide to do will not alter the plans of God. He's going to deliver his people, even if you have to find another person to do it. That is a humbling thought, church. That is a humbling thought, Christian. That's a humbling thought for us to remember who can often think way more highly of ourselves than we should. God doesn't need me and God doesn't need you. God will do what he will do with or without us. And and here's the deal. He's saying to Esther, hey, Here's the deal. Just think, let's think about this rationally. You may die if you go in. You may get the axe. 
You may die if you go in and you try to intercede. You are definitely going to die if you don't. You think that palace is going to keep you safe from somebody finding out down the road that you're a Jew? As soon as somebody, you know me to a person law, you can't, it's irreversible. So you either go in and you may die. If you don't go in, you're definitely going to die. So it may be a better idea to go in, but what's an even better idea is for you to see the palace that you're in, not as a place for you to try to stay safe, for you to try to rely on the powers of the world to keep you safe. It's not there for you to live a cushy lifestyle as a royal. Don't you see everything we've been through, everything that's been happening in your life has brought you to this moment for a divine purpose. And it's as if her heart shifts. She sees it. And her message back to Mordecai is a wonderful, a wonderful verse of faith. Verse 16, go and gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf. And do not eat or drink for three days, nights or day. And I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And here it is. If I perish, I perish. Some people try to look at that as like a fatalistic line. I don't. I think that she's having a moment right here where she's stepping out in faith, kind of like a Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego moment. This is what you call her developing what we need to develop and pray the Holy Spirit will develop into us a serious amount of gospel guts. You see her backbone turn into a backbone of steel. I love this part of Esther right here. And some of you came to church this morning, and here's the part of Esther you need to lean in and listen to. This is an incredible moment in her life, and it can be a credible amount of encouragement to you. You need to look at Esther. And you're looking at Esther with a crown on her head, but remember where she's come from. Remember what's in her past. Look at how God chooses to use This girl right here, an orphan girl with a sketchy checkered past, who's compromised, who's stayed silent, who's been victimized along the way. This is who he chooses right here to be his instrument, his vessel to help preserve the messianic line. God is showing us again that he loves to use unlikely weak vessels who simply make themselves in this moment available to him. Doesn't matter where you've been. Doesn't matter where you're from. Doesn't matter where you are. Doesn't matter what's behind you. I've said this before, but I'm going to keep saying it again and again. It's not about your past. It's not about your ability. It's not about your inability. It's about your humility and about your availability. You may have a lot of regrets. Listen, if you're in Christ, your sins have been confessed. Your sins have been repented of. Here you are in this moment. And yet you're still haunted by the things that are behind you in your past. You need to hear yet again. You are here now. Stop looking back. There's a reason why the rearview mirror is smaller than the windshield. And in this moment, she puts her yes on the table in spite of her past. And God uses her in a big way for his glory. It's never too late. It's never too late for you to make a difference in your family. It's never too late for you to begin to be the husband God's called you to be. It's never too late for you to be the wife God's called you to be. It's never too late for you to make an impact on your grandkids. It's never too late for you to begin to be a light in the neighborhood that God's placed you in. It's never too late. You may have worked at that job for years. It's never too late for you to begin to be on mission there and to make an impact for the kingdom of God. So she goes in, if I perish, I perish, and she intercedes. And very quickly with the last little bit that we have together, I want to show you what happens. And as I do, I want to introduce you to the final character in the story, who's really the main character in the last section we're going to call the Hidden Heroes Orchestration. So we have an enemy's planned annihilation. 
We have Queen Esther's courageous intercession, and now we have the hidden hero's orchestration. So Esther goes in. Just, hey, just lean in and listen to this, all right? This is where it gets really, really good. She obeys. She steps out in faith for such a time as this. She sees this at the moment, and look at what happens. Esther goes in. King Xerxes, he stretches out the scepter, doesn't get her head chopped off. What can I do for you? Ask me anything. And she uses some wisdom here. We're not sure why, but she doesn't feel like this is the moment to ask him for the big favor. So she says, what I want you to do here, I would love for you and Haman to come to a feast that I'm going to prepare today. She cooks him a meal, right? It's been said the way to a man's heart, right? Through his stomach. So she fixes in some meal, some food. She says, I want you and the, the VP Haman to be there. And so they go to this feast. And at the end, the king's like, okay, tell me, what is your wish? How can I help you? She says, here's what I want you to do next. I want you to come to another banquet. I want you to come to an op- another party tomorrow. Well, normal people would be like, I'm partied out, not Xerxes. He's a party animal. He's all about the party. He's like, let's do it. We'll do it again tomorrow. And she gives a personal invite again to Haman. And what does Haman do when he gets personally invited to something by a really important person? His head gets big. He's excited. He walks out of there strutting his stuff, walking tall, but his balloon is popped when he walks out of the palace. And who's standing there, unwilling to bow once again? Mordecai. And he gets mad and he stomps home. But he gets home and begins to brag about all of his stuff with his family. In chapter 5 and verse 12, it says, Then Haman said, he, after he's bragging about all the stuff that he has, he says, Even Queen Esther, let no one but me come to the feast that she's prepared. And tomorrow also invited, I was invited by her to be with another, at another feast with the king. And then he said this. This is how narcissistic he is. He said, But all of this is worth nothing to me so long as this guy, Mordecai, keeps standing there rolling his eyes, unwilling to bow to me. And his wife says, She goes, Why don't you just kill him now? Well, that's a what a sweethearted lady there that he's married to. (laughs) Dynamic duo. Haman says, That's a great idea. And so he gets the palace builders together and he says, I want you to build some gallows. And what uh, gallows were in the ancient Persian culture, you're basically talking about a cedar tree that was brought to a point, took some time to, to carve that out, where you just impale someone on top of it. And Haman has plans to go in to the king the next morning to get him to sign off on this expedited execution of Mordecai. Well, that same night as they're building the gallows, King Xerxes can't sleep. He's tossing, he's turning, he's tried to watch Sports Center. he's tried to scroll through Facebook, he's tried to pass the time by. Finally, he's like, I need somebody to read me a bedtime story. So he has one of the servants to go down and to fetch a book from the royal library, and the book was the King's Chronicles. He wanted to look through, it's a book of memorable deeds. And he opens it up, and the, and the place that he opens up to, and the place that he points and he begins to read, is about when Mordecai saved him from being assassinated from years before. He said, I forgot about this guy. And he asked the servant, he goes, do we do anything to reward this guy? And the servant goes, no, I don't think we did anything at all. He says, I'm going to reward him. We're going to make a big deal of this. What a guy. We got to make sure Mordecai's paid back for what he did for me. Well, the next morning, there the king is in his office. Guess who shows up bright and early? Oh, Haman, he's got his coffee. He's been rehearsing his lines about how Mordecai should go ahead and die. And he walks in and before he can talk, king says, before you start, Haman, Haman, let me ask you a question. What should I do for a man that I really want to honor? And Haman said, in his mind, he thought, well, I've been waiting for this. In his mind, he's thinking, it's about time. The king wants to show, he thinks it's about him. 
And so all of his daydreaming about all the, the things that he feels like the world owes him begins to spill out right there in the king's court. And he says, oh, I don't know. How about a big parade? How about a nice robe? How about some yachts and some cars and some mansions and some fancy jewelry and some diamonds and some gold and some, hey, how about a whole bunch of that? And Xerxes says, I like the way you're thinking, Haman. I want to do all of that for Mordecai and I want you to organize it. <laughs> now, I'm not a fan of picture Bibles right? For adults. But I would love, and if there's anywhere in scripture that I'd love just a painting to see Haman's face, it would be this place right here. Well, he has to parade. He has to lead a parade around town calling for folks to honor Mordecai. And then later that day, he goes to a feast. Maybe he's still kind of excited about that. And he goes to the feast with the, with the queen, with King Xerxes. And, and there King Xerxes says that again. He says, Esther, you're killing me. Can't, come on. What can I do to help you? And so just picture it. Xerxes is there. Haman is there. In chapter 7, verse 4, she says, For we have been sold, talking about Jews, I and all my people, to be destroyed and to be killed and to be annihilated. Gats out of the bag. She exposes her heritage, her Jewish roots. This is another place maybe in Scripture. I'd love to see a picture of Haman's face. The queen's a Jew. And the king is mad. He says, who would dare put together a plan like this? And in verse 6, she points at Haman and she says, a foe and an enemy, the wicked Haman. And the king's mad and he storms out of the room. He storms out of the banquet. Well, in the meantime, uh, Haman runs over and grabs onto Esther's uh, robe or onto her dress. And he's pleading for his life and kind of tumbles on top of her. He's panicking so bad. Well, about that time, the king comes back in to the banquet and sees him on top of her. And he's like, oh, snap. No, you didn't. You wanted to kill her. Now you're trying to assault her. Now you're trying to take advantage of her. Hang him. Hang him high. Kill him. And the servant says, well, we actually can do that now because there's some gallows that were being put together last night for Mordecai. So you see Haman's hanged. And you begin to see this great reversal happen here where Haman is demoted and destroyed and killed and Mordecai is actually promoted. Mordecai is actually elevated. He's actually able, he, the king says, hey, we can't reverse this decree, but I'm giving you the power, Mordecai, to put in, into place another edict, another decree. And he passes it and that decree says all the Jews in 11 months have, have permission to defend themselves. And defend themselves, they do. And they wipe out every Persian person who is in on that plan. And the nation of Israel is saved from annihilation. Now, that's some poetic justice right there. As we wind this down over the last couple minutes this morning that we have together, stay with me. I want us to respond to this story in three quick ways. Number one, see the gospel in the story. Does that, that, isn't that satisfying to see how this thing shook down? Like just when you, when you realize what's going on, the ga- oh my goodness, Haman's about to get what he deserves. We like that. That feels good, right? feels good to see wicked people meet justice. We love movies like that. We love when the bad guy gets what's coming to him. And we're supposed to long for justice to be served. We serve a God who is just. We serve a God who's gonna deal with all wickedness. And Haman's downfall is a sobering picture of judgment. So think about that for a while. 
It's a sobering picture of judgment. But we have to be careful because when we come to this, especially if you don't know Christ and you're coming to the story for the first time, it's easy to quickly begin to try to look for ourselves in the maturing Mordecai, in the maturing Esther. To, to quickly cheer on the downfall of Haman. Instead of realizing that first when we come to this story, we realize Haman's a picture of us in our sin. Every one of us is born with a desire for our own glory. Every one of us is born with a desire to promote ourselves, to get one up on the person next to me. All of us are kind of born with a bent to cut other people down so that we can build ourselves up. Is that not true? Is that not what junior high trains you to do in an organized way? We, uh, I got to sit in front of a group of like six or seven junior high girls at a field trip that I went on this past week. I went on a field trip with my son to a, to a hockey game. When I saw that they were going on a hockey game to a field trip, first of all, why were those field trips at whenever I was in elementary school? Man. So I signed up for it, and, and there we are uh, with these girls. And, and by the way, uh, I thought we were just going with my son's class, and we show up. No one told me there would be 10,000 other elementary middle school kids attending the same hockey game. I wasn't aware of that. I also wasn't aware that in the middle of it, someone thought it would be a good idea to play the song, Let It Go. Is that what it's called? Let It Go from the Disney movie Frozen. Have you ever been in the middle of 6,000 middle school girls singing the Frozen song? It'd take me a while to get over that. That will haunt you. I seriously think the military may want to consider that as a torture strategy, right? I mean, like whatever you want, take it, just make them stop, please, please. But as I'm sitting there listening to them, Nothing's changed in however many years it's been since I'm in middle school. Cutting people down, joking. A joke here at the expense of this person here. Making fun of this person's looks. Cutting people down to lift themselves up. And I sat there thinking, I mean, junior high is training a bunch of Hamans right here. Hey, but here's the, here's the truth. Kids just grow up and become more sophisticated adult Hamans. Because we're born with a bent inside of us instead of giving God the glory that he deserves. We're born into sin. We're born sitting on the throne of our own heart, self-seeking glory hounds. And Haman's downfall is a foreshadowing of what the day of judgment will look at for people who oppose Christ and live for their own glory. But here's the good news. This story also shows us how we can escape that judgment. This story echoes another story about Jesus who came and lived righteously in a way we couldn't perfectly, in a way that we couldn't, and died the death we deserve to die on another tree, on another execution instrument, not gallows, but a cross. And there God's justice fell on Christ Jesus and for all who trust in him, who all trust in what he did to save you from your sins, a great reversal takes place. And sinners, listen, you get your sins paid for, but justice falls on the innocent one so that you can go free. And like Mordecai, you get lifted up to a position of family in the family of God. As a son of God, as a daughter of God, all because Jesus died on the cross and rose from the grave and ascended to the right hand of the Father. And there he stands as a greater intercessor for you. Do you see Jesus in this story? God had a deliverer in place for his people living in Persia that day. And every Jew in Persia felt a rush of hope when they realized that they had a friend in the palace. Y'all listening this morning? Every born-again believer, here's the hope that you have. You live with the hope of knowing you got a friend in Jesus. 
You got a friend in the great intercessor. You got a friend who is right there in the throne room of God praying for you, interceding for you. He is our great deliverer. He is our great intercessor. I got three more minutes and I'm going to take all of them this morning. I said three things. I'm just going to give you two. Last thing is this. Number one, see the gospel here. Number two, celebrate the sovereign hand of God seen all over this story. You say, well, and if you paid attention, I don't see God's name in the verses that we read. In fact, you look at the entire book, God's name's not mentioned anywhere. It's the only book in all of the Bible where the name of God isn't mentioned one single time. And I believe the reason for this is a wonderful way or a wonderful style of writing, of literature, a creative way for the author to make a very real point. Why doesn't he include the name of God to make sure that you understand no matter what you go through, no matter how messy things get, no matter how powerful the things in this world look? At times it may feel like God is silent. Listen, but never make the mistake of realizing he's never absent. He's never not working. The hidden providential hand of God is here and it never stops working throughout this entire book. It may look like a bunch of, read through the whole thing again. It may look like a bunch of random happenings. It may look like a guy who just had a little insomnia who needed a little bedtime story who opened a book and just coincidentally opened it up to that one story of Mordecai foiling that assassination plot. No, that was God working in every twist and every turn. Somehow in his sovereign power, weaving together even the mess, even the sin to accomplish his sovereign purposes. This is teaching you something this morning, child of God. It's teaching you something about the story of redemption. It's teaching you something about world history. It's teaching you something about the church and the future of the church. It's teaching you something about your life. God is in control of all of it. Proverbs 21.1 says this, The king's heart are a stream of water in the hand of the Lord, that he turns it wherever he will. That's the God we serve. Hey, and if he's got the heart of kings in his hands, If he can take an orphan girl and get her to a place through a long broken path of being in a palace at the right time to save the right people. If if he is this in charge of all the world's governments that they are in his sovereign hand, don't you think that you can rest in the truth this morning that he has your life under control? Even when God's silent right now, if you're in Christ, he's not... Hey, listen, he's not absent. Even when you don't feel him working, he's working. When you were sleeping last night, he was working. He never stops working. He's he's never absent. He's never not in control. He never leaves the control room of the cosmos. He never makes mistakes. He makes no accidents. There's no coincidences. You look the way you look because he made you that way. He's given you the talents and skills that he's given you. Because he wanted you to have them. He's given you the family that you have and the job that you have and the school that you go to because God wants you there. He's placed you there on purpose with the purpose of being an Esther to where you're seizing opportunities. You're saying, if I perish, I may perish stepping forward in faith, seeing that God's placed me here for such a time as this to be his hands and feet, to be his ambassador in his kingdom for his glory. Praise God for that. Praise God for the gospel. Praise God for the sovereign hand. His sovereign hand that is orchestrating all things. That's something to be thankful about.
So this week's Thanksgiving. I know it feels like Christmas, but we got decorated early. But this week's Thanksgiving. Can you believe that it's here? And I'll tell you, this guy right here, I'm thankful about some good old Thanksgiving food this week. I'm thankful that on Thursday, I'm going to eat some of my mom's food. We get to eat some of my my wife's side of the family. They cook some good Thanksgiving food, and I get to go through that line, and I get to load up that plate, and I'm thankful that I get to eat some turkey and some cranberry sauce and some deviled eggs and some stuffing and some sweet potato casserole and my mom's crock pot macaroni and cheese. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Is anybody listening to me this morning? We're about to have some church. I don't want to hear anybody talking about, I don't like Thanksgiving food. Don't rain on my parade, all right? I'm going to go and have my first round of Thanksgiving food and my second round and my third round. And then those, those daily, the following day microwave rounds where you just put it all on that paper plate and just let it all melt together like a big Thanksgiving casserole. Hey, but I'm thankful that I got way more to be thankful for than Thanksgiving food. I'm thankful that God's never given up on me. I'm thankful that God uses Esther's and Mordecai's and former Haman's like me. I'm thankful that he's working. I'm thankful that while I was sleeping last night, he was working. I'm thankful for the cross. I'm thankful that my past is not my future. I'm thankful that my present is not my future. I'm thankful that in Jesus Christ, I'm accepted and loved and valued. I'm thankful for a savior, for a king that didn't demand me to come to him as clean and beautifully moral to accept me, but made me clean and made me beautiful through the blood of Jesus Christ that he shed for me on that cross. And I'm grateful he's not done with us. I'm grateful he'll never give up on us. I'm grateful he's in complete control. I'm grateful that one day the God of justice is sending his son back to this earth to establish a new heavens and a new earth. And there we will be next to him in Christ. If we are saved because he stepped out of heaven over 2000 years ago and died on the cross and rose from the dead. And he's our great intercessor. And that's something to be thankful for. Let's pray.